From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Republican candidate for state attorney general agrees with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but John Kellner sees abortion access as settled in Colorado. I think it's important that that be returned to the states to make that decision. And I truly believe as it works through the political process, as it has done here in the state of Colorado, you're going to see states moderate towards a you know, acceptable middle. Kellner says public safety is the main reason he's running for AG. Then the Broncos' new owners score big with the NFL, just as players prepare for this weekend's exhibition opener. We can't wait to get to Denver, join our new colleagues, and get to work. Plus the debate over selling wine in grocery stores. Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. When I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car, as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The state attorney general is Colorado's top law enforcement official, representing the people, capital P, in legal matters, also tasked with consumer protection. And John Kellner wants to be Colorado's next AG. He's running against incumbent Democrat Phil Weiser, who joined us last month. Today, it's Mr. Kellner a Marine Corps veteran who's currently the district attorney for Arapahoe, Douglas, Elbert, and Lincoln counties. He spoke with Ryan Warner. What's the biggest change Coloradans would see if they vote out the current attorney general and vote you in? You know, the purpose of my campaign, the real focus of this is a statewide emphasis on public safety. You know, right now it's no secret that Colorado's got a pretty dramatic crime wave that we're dealing with, whether it's stolen car rates or the fentanyl epidemic or, you know, our violent crime spiking to a 25-year high. I think Coloradans are ready for somebody who is going to wake up every single day and think about how are they going to make the state safer. And when it comes to that, you know, I've been a crime fighter, prosecutor pretty much my entire career, whether it was in the Marine Corps or moving forward now as the elected district attorney for the largest, most populated judicial district in the state of Colorado. And that's really been my focus day in and day out is what policies can I advocate for that make Colorado safer? You know, what sort of statewide emphasis can we put on tackling the fentanyl epidemic, like going after these drug cartels on a statewide basis? You know, it's much easier to affect that change as a district attorney. I mean, that DA role is so much closer to the crime, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. Give me an example of a power you see in the attorney general's office. I I suppose it's more than as a standard bearer or something. Well, certainly it matters who the advocate is at the statewide level. And what I mean by that is the attorney general has that bully pulpit. They've got the biggest megaphone out there to advocate for smart, common sense, public safety policies at the statewide level and at the legislature. 
But really specifically, you know, the Colorado Attorney General has access to the statewide grand jury. Now, you hear about what I do in the 18th. You know, we go after fentanyl cartels, um, oftentimes originating in Mexico, who are peddling this poison in our communities. Last December, we indicted over 20 individuals. We seized, I think, some 24 firearms, 110,000 fentanyl pills, and really trying to dismantle an organization that was pushing poison on young people and causing untold death. You know, so that's the local grand jury that I'm using. The statewide grand jury has the ability to look at this holistically across the entire state, not just the four counties that I have control or power over to affect it from a public safety standpoint. And I think that's truly what we need because this isn't a local problem. It is very much a statewide issue. So would you use the statewide grand jury more than the current attorney general? Do you think that's an underused resource? Absolutely. You know, the statewide grand jury can do things like going after organized retail theft organizations, organized car theft organizations, you know, groups of people that are working together, really in harming communities on a much broader scale than the one or two offs that you often see in the district attorney's office. And I'll tell you that's really important with the fentanyl accountability, you know, bill that was passed here in 2022. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that if you think it's a good law. I think there are some things in there that are going to be very useful and very helpful. And I you know, didn't hold back on my criticism and saying that I didn't think it went far enough. I truly think with how deadly fentanyl is that it really needs to be a felony to possess any amount of that. And yet so often people don't know they have it, John. I think that that is less and less the case now. And I would say, too, there is a lot of discretion in the district attorney level to really understand what is motivating people. And you know, let's say somebody did accidentally buy a pill that had fentanyl in it and somehow got arrested for that possession of that amount. You know, if they're a low-level first-time user, the goal of our justice system is to connect those people with treatment and resources. They're looking at diversion, you know, really, so they get into treatment not even necessarily complete the entirety of the treatment, but get through three or four of the sessions and get on that right path. And we'll withdraw those charges and hopefully keep them on that right path. Our health reporter was at Red Rocks recently, John Daly. And this was a story about test strips for fentanyl, uh, which are becoming increasingly available. And there was indeed a party there who didn't know their drugs were laced with fentanyl. What evidence do you have that less of that is happening? That's just my experience in the justice system, obviously interacting with a lot of folks who get arrested for possession and say they knew what they had was fentanyl. And then on top of that, I think it's become more and more prevalent, you know, certainly throughout the media and everybody talking about it, that this fentanyl has really gotten its way into most of the drug supply out there. You think that message is reaching people more than it used to? Mm -hmm. I, I certainly think it is. I hope it is because they need to know because it's certainly very deadly. I want to ask you about two recent Supreme Court rulings, U.S. Supreme Court, uh, on abortion and guns. And why don't we begin with abortion? In a recent debate, you said you support the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Legally, why do you believe it was the right ruling? I think it's important that that be returned to the states to make that decision. And I truly believe that as it works through the political process, as it has done here in the state of Colorado, you know, you're going to see states probably moderate towards a you know, acceptable middle that you know, many Americans support. 
in the state of Colorado, abortion's been legal since before Roe v. Wade. That's right. It's legal after Roe v. Wade. It's legal now after it was overturned. And just to be clear and address that head on in case this is your next question, yes, as attorney general, I will defend the law of the state of Colorado, the Reproductive Health Equity Act. I truly understand that in Colorado, and look, not only have people spoken through their legislature, as the Dobbs decision basically allowed them to do, but they've spoken through their direct you know, ballot access measures where they're speaking that direct democracy path of saying, look, this is what we support in Colorado. I, I hear respect you, that. I hear you saying that Colorado has settled on the issue of abortion and it wants to maintain access, differently put. Yeah, that's okay. exactly what I... And yet we hear other Republicans who say there ought to be a federal ban on abortion and that this shouldn't be up to the states. Would you enforce a federal ban? I think that's a big hypothetical. Got a long way to go before you'd get anywhere close to seeing a federal ban uh, be put in place. All laws start as hypotheticals, though, and the, the discussion is underway. So where do you stand on a federal abortion ban? What I don't think is realistic is that there would be a federal abortion ban. I don't think there's the votes for that. I don't hear people realistically discussing a federal abortion ban. And certainly when it conflicts with what the Dobbs decision has said in terms of returning it to the states to make that decision and our state of Colorado having spoken on that issue, I think the attorney general would have a significant role in standing up to support our state's decision. And I would do that. State lawmakers this year indeed cemented abortion access into Colorado law. You made reference to that law. It forbids local governments from restricting the procedure And I'll just say that your opponent in this race says that he would sue any locality that tried to restrict within Colorado. Would you deal with that any differently? No, I think that's the right answer. You know, when you're talking about upholding the rule of law and upholding the law of the state of Colorado as the attorney general is sworn to do, that is um, what I will do as AG. The result, of course, of the Dobbs decision is that you have now different laws in different states. What that means is we know people are coming to Colorado seeking abortions because they are from places where they are banned. Would you cooperate with authorities in those states if, uh, for some reason, they try to go after those patients or their health care providers? No, I, I don't think it's realistic or lawful for another state to criminalize the conduct that somebody engages in that's lawful in another state. I mean, just by way of example, let's say you come from a state that doesn't allow you to smoke marijuana, uh, that it's illegal to do so in their state, and they come to the state of Colorado. Uh, they enjoy you know, the cannabis industry here, and they can't then go back to that state and the state say, well, you were in Colorado and you broke the law. That's not how the United States of America works. And I also have heard people be concerned about restricting their right to travel between states. I think that's flatly unconstitutional, and I would stand up against that too. And to take it another step further, I mean, if you're talking about medical doctors who are you know, licensed in the state of Colorado, performing a lawful procedure in the state of Colorado, to see someone outside of our state try to criminalize that is wrong, and I would fight that too. In a concurring opinion to Dobbs, Justice Clarence Thomas says the Obergefell ruling that made gay marriage legal nationwide 
and which is, by the way, the only protection for same-sex unions in Colorado. Thomas says that should now be reconsidered. Uh, do you agree with him? No, I think Thomas is in the you know, vast major- minority here, excuse me. Really, I think in the state of Colorado, especially and nationwide, you know, we have moved over the years towards respecting marriage equality. I think it's become really entrenched in our culture and society. You know, I think as attorney general, if anybody tried to you know, restrict somebody's right to marry a person that they love, I would fight against that. Why do you think uh, a good number of people in your own party disagree with that? You'd have to ask other people why they think that way. I mean, my you, life experience. You must have conversations, though, with other course, Republicans. Of course, but you know, we're not all uh, cookie cutter you know, people. We have a big tent, and we have differences of opinions. You know, my life experiences have informed you know my beliefs on this. You know, part of that is having been uh, in foreign countries, you know, like Afghanistan, in the Marine Corps, and seeing you know, truly how people are mistreated in you know, cultures and societies that don't respect people's differences and finding that abhorrent. Uh, Let's talk a bit about guns. So after the Supreme Court struck down New York's concealed carry restrictions, do you believe there are gun laws in Colorado that are now unconstitutional? No, I wouldn't go there. I think what the Bruin decision really said was, look, in these sort of May issue states, when you're going to overly restrict somebody's, you know, a law-abiding person's right to defend themselves, then there's probably a Second Amendment constitutional challenge that's coming your way. But they didn't go out of their way and say, look, we're striking down, let's say, a state's decision to require some kind of training before you can get that license, or a state's decision that says if you are a prior convicted felon, you cannot possess that firearm. It really was fairly narrowly tailored, and I don't see that as being the avenue by which people are going to effectively be able to attack Colorado's laws. One role that the attorney general plays is to monitor and report on the red flag gun law in Colorado to see how often it's used. The idea being that if someone is a threat to themselves or others, a judge uh, may rule with intervention from a family member or law enforcement that that person's firearm be temporarily removed. Do you support the red flag law? Is it something you'd enforce? It, it is, and it's something that's you know come through our office on occasion, and it has potentially saved lives. And you know, I was asked about this in a forum in Aurora not long ago, and you know, I had just attended our 10-year anniversary of the horrific mass shooting in the Aurora Theater, where 12 lives were lost and 70 others uh, horribly injured. And of course, our office you know had that front row seat and that responsibility to seek justice in that case. And you know, I've said, look, if there was you a person- You were not DA then, well, to I be wasn't. clear. I was part yeah. of the office. Uh-huh. It was an all hands on deck sort of case you know, over many years. But it's one of those situations where you sit there and say, look, if there had been a way, if we had known that this man was going to engage in this sort of you know, horrific mass murder, and there was a legal way to potentially prevent it, that, yeah, I would have used that. I'd like to get you on the record as a lawman about the January 6th insurrection and the false claims of election fraud that really fueled it. John Kellner, do you dispute the results of the 2020 election? One. And two, was the attack on the Capitol wrong? 
One, no, I don't. And that's something I've been very consistent on since I announced my campaign and frankly consistent on in my thoughts uh, going back to when I was originally elected in 2020. Having seen really how... As district attorney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I uh, I had a, a very close race, and so it was closely monitored when I ran for district attorney. I remember I, it took a day or two, didn't it? It did. It took yeah. a few days. Uh-huh. And um, it was one of those things where you see very closely and personally you know, how accurate and effective our Colorado system is, especially among my four counties and the different clerks that worked really hard in their staff to make sure it was accurate. So, no, I don't believe the election was stolen. I've said that since day one of you know, my announcement uh, when I was running for attorney general. And in terms of January 6th, I think anybody who broke the law, I think anybody who assaulted a police officer, I think people that committed vandalism and tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power should suffer the consequences in court and probably look at jail or prison time. Should that include President Trump? I think President Trump stoked a lot of that You know, when he was talking about Things like a stolen election and people were talking about unleashing the Kraken and things that have never materialized with any sort of evidence. So, yeah, I think there's some responsibility there for somebody that's pushing out that narrative. Criminal? Civil? I don't know about either one of those. You know, what we've seen thus far doesn't lead me to say there is a criminal case to be made. I don't know about the civil aspect of that and what a plaintiff's attorney might come up with, but I don't see that one moving forward either. So you've pointed out that you were just elected DA in 2020. That means two years in that role, and now you're seeking the attorney general's seat. Why now? Why not give more time to that judicial district? It is a great question because my life goal is to be the district attorney. I I love being a prosecutor. And ever since leaving active duty in the Marine Corps in you know, 2011, that's what I've made my career in Colorado doing, is seeking justice for victims in court. But I also got a very clear view of how statewide laws and policies have failed to keep people safe and realizing that if I really want to turn the tide on this crime wave that's affecting my jurisdiction, it starts higher than just the DA. It is about replacing people who have enabled you know, criminal coddling behavior and laws, uh, and they frankly need to go. We need stronger leadership at that state level if we really want to affect the future of Colorado when it comes to crime. We have talked about fentanyl, which of course is an opioid. In recent years, Colorado's attorney general, like many states' attorneys general, Uh, have been closely involved in settlements with opioid manufacturers. Colorado is set to receive around a half a billion dollars. More is likely as the Sackler family emerges from bankruptcy. John Kellner, candidate for attorney general, do you see today's fentanyl crisis as tied to the original overprescription of painkillers? You know, somebody who's been in the prosecution world for a long time, I do see a pretty clear line between the overprescription of painkillers and opioids leading to then heroin abuse and then leading to fentanyl abuse, which is now causing you know, 900 plus people to overdose just last year alone. So yeah, I do see a, a clear connection you know, from that corporate boardroom 
and the decisions that are made to try and push you know opioids on people that probably didn't need them uh, and probably needed far less if they did and you know far fewer prescriptions to where we are today and yet the the blame you cast was on the the current administration and the current sitting attorney general i mean doesn't the blame fall squarely on those manufacturers oh i don't know what you mean by blame you know, I've criticized the settlement amounts. You know, we're talking about 9,000 plus deaths related to opioids over the years that I think we should be, as a state, seeing more than that $400 million over 18 years uh, coming to our state. You know, as somebody who sits on a, a regional council for opioids as well, and you start to see, you know, and even in a big council, in a big area, hey, this is not a lot of money spread out over 18 years, especially when you're accounting for uh, just the, the level of death and addiction that our state has seen. One of the primary roles of state attorney general is consumer protection under what is generally called the Department of Law. Um, what do you think is like a, a big threat right now to consumers? Is it spam? Is it what, <laughs> what is it that you see on that horizon? It, there are so many threats to consumers right now. I mean, obviously, robocalls are a scourge that we all hate, and we probably get about a dozen of them nearly a day. They get trickier, too, don't they, John? They do. Like, they, they, they'll sometimes have local numbers, and I, I get duped. We all do. <laughs> uh, and here's the thing. More and more scammers focusing really on elderly folks. I host this annual Senior Law and Safety Summit where we're really trying to spread the word to folks that are potentially more vulnerable to these scam calls. You know, they even have things where when you do pick up, they'll basically ask you, a press one if you're over the age of 65, and press one, of course, if you are, and it takes you to somebody else. If you press two or zero, it just hangs up on you. So there are a lot of people that are engaging in these scams are much more sophisticated, and that's a big concern for everybody. Yeah, I, I do see one of the big failings here from the current attorney general is, you know, that some hundred million dollars of unemployment insurance uh, trust fund money that was paid out for fraudulent claims throughout the course of the pandemic and having a role at the state level to go seek that money out and try to get it back to the state of Colorado. And I think thus far we've seen about 0.3 percent of that, you know, actually make it back here. And the problem with that is, look, the amount of time that's gone by you are running up against real issues and ever being able to see any of that money come back because it is long gone, you know, offshore and overseas at this point. You've hinted at your biography, your time in the military, uh, your time at the DA's office. I'll note that you attended CU Boulder's law school. And according to your campaign website, something remarkable happened the first day of classes. What, what happened? You know, I joined the Marine Corps. I was commissioned after uh, 9-11 I graduated college, and I went off to law school in Boulder. And I thought Boulder was going to be a pit stop. I thought Colorado was just a stop along my military career. But on my first day of law school, I met my now wife, Sarah. She's just an incredible, amazing woman. And, you know, I went on active duty for five years, but always knew that I was going to come back here, settle down, put down roots, and raise our kids in Colorado. It's an amazing thing to have met your wife on day one. Did you know then? Uh, it took about a year before okay. she dated me. It oh, wasn't, okay. <laughs> a, wasn't an immediate thing. I had to work on that for a while. Speaking of campaigns, yeah. John, 
thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate the time. Republican candidate for Colorado Attorney General John Kellner recorded Monday. He's currently the elected DA in Colorado's 18th Judicial District. He and Ryan spoke before the FBI searched former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. We asked Kellner about it. In a statement, he wrote, The raid on President Trump's Florida home was unprecedented and underscores the need for the FBI and the Department of Justice to be as transparent as possible throughout the investigation. Both agencies should strive to avoid the politicization of law enforcement, and I strongly encourage them to release the affidavit in support of the search warrant. You can also listen to Ryan's conversation with Democratic incumbent Attorney General Phil Weiser at CPR.org. They talk about abortion, gun laws, and opioids. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Matters is live in Grand Junction for the next Turn the Page, a conversation with nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. His latest book contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. When you see images painted or pecked on stone, you're seeing the original inhabitants. And when you start looking around, you realize they're everywhere. Pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join Colorado Matters September 6th in Grand Junction. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The deal is now complete. The National Football League has approved the sale of the Denver Broncos to Walmart heir Rob Walton. The price tag of more than $4.6 billion is a record setter. With us to talk about the deal and the diverse group Walton put together is Lindsay Jones. She's senior NFL editor at the sports and pop culture website, The Ringer. Lindsay, welcome back. Hi, thank you so much for having me. The deal is being finalized with the start of the regular season a little more than a month away. Some fans might think the deal will mean immediate success on the field. Do new owners mean we can expect good things from the Broncos? Well, I mean, this is just kind of a fresh start, right? I mean, as as successful as the Broncos were under Pat Bowen's ownership, over the last decade or so, and especially over the last five years, the uncertainty about the succession plan has really just been a dark cloud that's been hanging over this franchise. So now with this new ownership and group in place, um, uh, the, the Walton Penner group uh, have the deepest pockets now of any owners in the NFL. You can expect, you know, some changes, potentially some upgrades, um, you know, money to spend, more money to spend on players, those sorts of things. So I don't know if this immediately is going to, you know, mean more wins. That's going to have a lot more to do with Russell Wilson and Nathaniel Hackett and what they produce on the field. Um, but in terms of just a, a, a new start for ownership and potentially uh, an influx of money into this organization and into the city, you know, that's something that fans could probably be excited about. Going into the sale, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell expressed hope that the Broncos would be purchased by a person of color. Some of the names floated included Denver business magnate Robert Smith and former child actor Byron Allen. In the end, uh, you mentioned the deep pockets of the Walton family. They seem to have won out. We should say there are three black members of the group of new owners. But have you heard any pushback that the buyer wasn't a person of color? Well, this wasn't entirely surprising with the, the Bolin Trust, the way that it was set up, that they had a fiduciary responsibility to sell the team to the highest bidder. Um, so as much as the NFL and other owners said that they would they wanted to have um, more diversity 
in their ranks and would prioritize um, minority, you know, diverse ownership group. Ultimately, it came down to what was the highest bid um, and a strongest bid, one that could be, you know, all the finances be vetted. Um, you know, so right now, I mean, this seems to be something that the NFL is happy about, the way that this ownership group is put together, that there are, you know, Melody Hobson, who, you know, she's the chairwoman of Starbucks right now, um, you know, Suler, Sue, uh, Sir Lewis Hamilton, excuse me, the F1 driver, he's going to bring in a, you know, a massive international fan base potentially um, to the Broncos. And then Condoleezza Rice, who has some deep Denver roots and some pretty strong sports connections. Um, those are pretty, you know, three pretty notable um limited partners and owners that are going to be joining this group. So, you know, I, you know, I don't think there's any substantial criticism at this point that it, that the team wasn't purchased. Um, the controlling owner uh, was not uh, somebody who is from a diverse background, um, but it does seem like there is a little bit of improvement, at least compared to some of the other ownership groups that we see in, around the league. And this comes at a time when the NFL is being sued by a former coach, Miami's Brian Flores. He says in a class action lawsuit that he was racially discriminated against by six teams that included the Broncos. Where does the case stand now? So right now, it's still um, kind of in early stages in the legal system. The NFL is trying to push that lawsuit into arbitration. um, And Brian Flores and his team. He also has uh, two co, um, two other coaches have joined that lawsuit as a class action. Um, they're very much trying to keep this in court, which would, you know, open up discovery and depositions and all of those sorts of things. So right now, the sides are kind of arguing over those steps right now to see exactly if, if it will stay in the legal system or if it will uh, end up in arbitration, which is the NFL's hope. I'll also point out that Flores' successor is Mike McDaniel. He's a graduate of Smoky Hill High School in Aurora. And as we mentioned, since the sale, a number of partners have joined Walton's group. Uh, you talked about them, Melody Hobson, chairwoman of Starbucks. There's also former Secretary of State and University of Denver student Condoleezza Rice and Formula One race car driver Lewis Hamilton. That's a lot of star power and all three are black. Here's what Rob Walton said about the group during a news conference after the sale was finalized. As we started uh, thinking about partners, we wanted to get people with tremendous capacity. We think the diversity is important. We think diverse organizations are more successful organizations, and we're looking forward to working with them. This is a pretty eclectic group. I understand Rice and Hobson are expected to be in Denver along with the other new owners for a news conference later today. Were there earlier connections between Rice, Hobson, and Hamilton with Walton that would have led to this? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. That's something that we want to find out. I'm going to be at that press conference later this afternoon out at the Broncos facility to to find out a little bit more about how, how all of this um, came together, um, you know, how long Melody Hobson, her husband, uh, George Lucas, the, the movie producer, um, you know, how long maybe they've been interested in, in getting into the professional sports game. Um, you know, but I think investing in the NFL is good business. Um, hmm. And I was told earlier this year that, um, you know, becoming a limited partner, especially at probably at the level that Hobson is at, maybe less so the limited partnership um, level that Lewis Hamilton and Condoleezza Rice are at right now. That's how you get ready to own your own team. And if another team were to become available um, or on, on the market in, in several years, you know, maybe somebody like Melody Hobson might be in position then to become a controlling owner. So that's one of the things that I'm going to be watching for moving forward out of this. 
So the NFL has gotten some pretty mixed reviews in recent years when it comes to issues of race and diversity. Um, With the Broncos um, and the ownership, will the three truly be part of this ownership? Or is this a way to for the league to sort of check off a box? Well, it might be a little bit of both. Um, The way that the NFL is structured is that it is a, you know, there has to be one controlling owner. And when it comes to voting matters, um, league issue matters, there generally is, you know, one owner in the room. There's a lot of what they call privileged sessions where there can only be one person in the room um, who's voting. So in this case, we'll see if that's going to be Rob Walton or if it's going to be Greg Penner or uh, Carrie Walton Penner, who will be the one person who ends up being the, the person who casts the votes for the NFL. So I'll be very curious to see if we see you know, Melody Hobson, especially participating in league meetings and showing up at league events and those sorts of things, or if it's primarily the majority owners, the, the Walton Penner group, who will be representing the team and having say in in all of their team and league matters. My my inclination is to think it's primarily going to be the Walton Penners, but, you know, Hobson is in a position with her business experience um, to, to have an impact here. And I hope that, I hope that her, uh, her insight is taken into consideration on team and league matters. Just to wrap up here, um, training camp continues out at Dove Valley, just south of Denver. The Broncos are getting ready for their opening preseason game against the Dallas Cowboys. What's the most important thing to look for Saturday night? Well, we'll see. We have a, I don't think we've heard exactly how much the new quarterback, Russell Wilson, is going to play. But I've been out there at training camp a few times this summer. And I'll just say there's it's just a completely different vibe now with Russell Wilson around. It's been a rough few years for the Broncos at quarterback, really, since Peyton Manning retired. So, you know, football-wise, it's going to be all about the performance of Russell Wilson mm-hmm. and what he's able to do to make this team more competitive immediately and, and for the long term. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Lindsay Jones is senior editor of the sports and pop culture website, The Ringer. She joined us to talk about the sale of the Denver Broncos to a group led by Walmart heir Rob Walton. The NFL finalized it Tuesday. And just to note, the transaction triggered a $41 million refund to seven counties in Metro Denver. It stems from their funding of part of the cost to build Empower Field at Mile High. There's a new business incubator to help fashion designers in Colorado launch their new clothing lines. CPR's Eden Lane takes us into factory fashion, where the mission goes far beyond the label. Tucked into Aurora's Stanley Marketplace, factory fashion is, in part, a fashion design studio and sewing school for youth through adults. Owner Sky Barker Ma also supports Colorado designers bringing their work to market with a small batch manufacturing program. We are an incubator for designers. They can come work here. They can rent booth space here. Four designers are currently participating in the Factory Fashion Small Batch Manufacturing Initiative. To produce the clothing, the sewing students receive training in skills ranging from the fundamentals to haute couture. Lisa Ramfjord-Elston, one of the instructors, explains that the program enables local designers to participate in the vital Made Local project. They want Made in Colorado, and it's just like the farm-to-table or the, the craft beer industry. People want to know where their clothes are made, and so if we can say they're made here in Denver and in Colorado, um, it would be 
fun to see that happen. Ramfjord Elston has worked toward this idea for the past eight years, so she was excited when Barker Ma asked her to join this program. I would love to have all levels of experience to work with, and because the faster that we can get to higher level skills, the faster we can bring in more designers. And the clothes they make are as varied as the people in Colorado. All around the bright space waiting for the next batch of artists to get to work, there are rows of sewing machines, work tables, and sergers. One of the designers working with Factory Fashion, Inoberto Mojardin, says the program is more than an opportunity to grow his own business. Not only thinking of myself, but for my community also. Opening doors for designers, our youth, our kids, but older also, that they don't consider themselves designers. They say, oh, I'm just a seamstress, and I always tell them, no, you're not just a seamstress. You are a designer, and you can create, and you can do more than what you think. Barker Ma says the school doesn't just help people learn how to make clothes, but also how to get their work in front of people who might buy it to start building a following. I mean, I think part of the challenges that, you know, designers have, especially local, is that when they're trying to actually bring their clothes to market, they're typically getting routed to, you know, L.A. to source. And so they're bumping into people, manufacturers who want minimums that are incredibly high. And Remfjord Elston says just having the opportunity to learn from others and get experience with the machines can make a difference for new designers. Designers truly, as they are starting their lines, don't have access to the type of equipment and or skill levels that a facility like this will offer. The program is also part of the bigger conversations around bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. and re-evaluating trade school education. What we are able to do and found out during the pandemic is that sewers were and are an essential person that needs to be employable in this country. We haven't had home ec in the high school curriculums for almost 30 years. The technology that's available in bringing back advanced um, manufacturing for the sewn goods industry requires much more than your grandma's sewing machine on the kitchen table kind of mentality. And the net factory fashion casts in attracting more people to the industry is even wider. It also focuses on including refugee communities and those leaving the prison population. You know, we have opportunities for these populations to begin a career and a career that offers benefits and a career that offers financial stability. And Barker Ma dreams big. She says she even dreams that one day the program can offer its students help on a path to citizenship. You know, we're, we're trying to train into a highly skilled environment. And so we're also working really hard with local nonprofits to provide a path to citizenship and, and a place home if that's something that you need as well. So those are things that are important in addition to a love of fashion and, and, you know, the excitement of what we do. Factory Fashion's small batch manufacturing program is only one part of its business. It also includes summer camps, performances, film programs, and a speakeasy. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. For Coloradans who like to drink alcohol, how and where you get it could be on the ballot this November. Monday was the deadline for backers of ballot initiatives to submit signatures to the Secretary of State's office. CPR election intern Will Cornelius has been looking into those efforts. And Will, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Let's start with one of the three ballot proposals. It would allow wine in grocery stores. That's something a lot of other states allow, but not Colorado. This is probably something grocery chains want. Uh, Exactly. And as most people who shop probably realize, groceries are currently allowed to sell beer, but not wine. And supermarkets have always wanted wine in their stores. Even 40 years ago, uh, they went to the ballot, but voters rejected it by a 30-point margin. Now, a lot has changed in that time. Colorado's population has nearly doubled, craft beverages have boomed here, and grocery shopping has really changed to a one-stop shop. So grocers feel that voters are ready to allow wine in supermarkets. And their pitch is that this is more convenient for customers, and ultimately it's what voters want. Backers of the ballot initiative have been gathering signatures for months now, and according to a spokesperson for the group, submitted over 170,000 signatures on Monday. And I imagine independent liquor stores aren't very happy with this. And uh, what are they saying? Well, liquor stores say this will significantly hurt their bottom lines. Large national grocery chains think King Supers, Safeway, and Walmart, they have a huge advantage when negotiating lower costs and their pricing power. In 2016 and 2018, changes to alcohol laws led to full-strength beer in grocery stores. Liquor stores have said that this led to permanent changes, and they say that wine in grocery stores will do the same. So we've talked about the argument from grocery stores, this makes buying wine more convenient. But I understand liquor stores say that convenience comes at a cost. So they're warning that this will result in smaller wine selection. In the long run, customers will have fewer options. They also won't have access to the knowledgeable recommendations. They argue that grocers stock tens of thousands of items, so they're not going to give that much attention or space to wine. Now, on the other hand, liquor stores basically have three categories of items, beer, wine, and liquor. They specialize in these items and offer a wide selection, from the hyper-local to things from the far ends of the earth. All the liquor stores I've talked to emphasize that they taste and handpick the wine in their stores. It's something they're hoping voters will value enough to preserve. So they're saying a better selection. We have been down this road before. It hasn't been that long since grocery stores started selling full-strength beer, and that was pretty contentious. Yes, you're exactly right. Uh, That was one that really played out back in 2016. This is when a grand compromise was made between groceries and liquor stores. And in that case, it went through the legislature in order to avoid the kind of ballot battle we're likely to see this year. The grand compromise allowed grocers to sell full-strength beer starting in 2019. And liquor stores were given some concessions to try and ease the blow to their businesses. Six years later, liquor stores will tell you that this didn't shake out like it was supposed to. But the grocery stores will tell you that this hasn't hurt liquor stores. In 2017, there were 1,600 retail liquor stores across Colorado. In 2021, there were only eight fewer stores. So allowing full-strength beer in grocery stores hasn't proven fatal, and grocers will tell you neither will wine. Liquor store owners say it was the pandemic that saved them. When restaurants were closed and people stayed inside, they turned to liquor stores for their beverage needs. 2020 was a lifeline for liquor stores, but as the pandemic wanes, liquor stores have seen revenue drop, and they say it will continue to drop if wine goes into grocery stores. So wine in grocery stores is just one of the possible ballot measures that have to do with alcohol. What are the other ones? So grocers and tech companies have also teamed up to gather signatures for an initiative that would allow third-party delivery of alcohol. So at the moment, the only businesses who can deliver alcohol are liquor stores themselves. 
they either do this themselves or through a partner like Drizzly. If this passes, Instacart could include alcohol in its orders, and so could DoorDash and Uber Eats. These companies are very eager to see this on the ballot and hopeful that it passes. DoorDash alone has contributed $3.2 million to get the ballot over the line. And then there's also a third measure out there being pushed by a national liquor store chain that would allow it and other chains to expand exponentially in the state. How would that work? So to explain that, I have to start with where the law stands now. One quirk of Colorado's liquor licensing laws is that historically, one person was only allowed to have one liquor license. This also applied to supermarkets. King Supers was only allowed to have one full liquor license in the state. This stopped chains from dominating the market in Colorado. That changed under the same laws that allow full-strength beer in grocery stores. They lifted the cap, but the plan was to gradually do this over 20 years. Now, the proposed ballot initiative would do this much quicker and allow an unlimited number of stores much sooner. It's being pushed by one large player, Total Wine and More. This is a very large chain with 233 locations across 27 states. The company and its founders have contributed $2.2 million towards the initiative. And now while this wouldn't change alcohol laws drastically overnight, critics argue that this is just another nail in the coffin for independent liquor stores who just cannot compete with large out-of-state chains. So liquor stores are clearly unhappy with all these proposals. What's their overall strategy? Yes. So liquor stores see this as an existential threat. The industry likes to point out that half of Colorado's independent liquor stores are female-owned, and almost two-thirds of owners use English as a second language. In response, liquor stores promoted a competing ballot initiative that would have made liquor licensing a local issue. Now, this initiative failed to get enough signatures for submission. So this has put liquor stores in a tough spot. There are three potential ballot initiatives that could have adverse effects on their stores. They also don't have a ballot measure they could promote. Instead, they are forced to play defense on three fronts against three different measures. How likely is it they'll make it onto the ballot? Backers of all three initiatives met the Monday deadline to submit signatures to the Secretary of State's office. It has 30 days to certify the signatures, so we should know in about a month or so if any or all of these measures are going to make it onto the November ballot. One final note, for an initiative to make it on the ballot, it needs just under 125,000 certified signatures. Typically, ballot initiatives will submit more signatures than this to account for rejected ones. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Andrea. That was CPR election intern Will Cornelius with an update on three alcohol-related initiatives Coloradans may vote on this fall. Public transportation is free across much of Colorado this month. It's part of an effort to lure drivers out of their cars to combat summer smog. CPR's Nathaniel Miner rode several RTD buses and trains recently on day one. He wanted to see who was riding. It looked like a typical morning. At the Peoria RTD rail station, people came and went. Everyone I talked to was a regular passenger, except for this guy. David Bledsoe. We climbed aboard the R-Line heading south. And how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling good. Got a good night's sleep and, uh, you know, something new to do for the week. 
uh, as opposed to just getting in my car and sitting in traffic. Bledsoe lives in Denver's Central Park neighborhood. His job is about 20 miles south, or about a 45-minute drive. But he says he's trying a transit commute for the first time today, because it's free. At first, we creep slowly along through central Aurora. Then, after about 25 minutes, we really pick up speed. Bledsoe looks out the window at the highway and smiles. I'm enjoying passing the gridlock. (laughs) The train is zooming by the people that are stuck in uh, traffic right now, so this is a very satisfying part of the journey. We get to the station near Bledsoe's office after about 50 minutes. Bledsoe says he loved the trip and plans to keep riding. The Clean Air campaign will only be successful if there are a lot more people like David Bledsoe. We'll get an official ridership report from RTD after this program wraps up. But free fares are a financial win for riders like Vincent Morales. He's in his mid-20s and works overnights at a grocery store. I spend probably like 30 bucks a week on bus passes, so that's probably like at least $120 this month that I'm going to be saving. That especially helps a lot. Morales hopes more people ride and that lawmakers expand the program. He says it's important for the environment and for people like him. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.